Today's reading is from Acts 16, verses 11 through 15. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members at her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. The word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. How's it going? Good. I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Y'all know what a meme is? A meme, it's like an image that gets passed around the internet from one person to another, and usually there's some text that is on the meme as well, but the text is different depending on who's sharing the meme. It's the image itself that continually gets passed around. Here's some of the the biggest memes that have ever been passed around here. This is a conspiracy Keanu. Uh, What if cats have their own internet and it's full of pictures of us? This is a evil Kermit. Me, I think I'm full. Me also. Just one more bag of chips. This is a success kid working from home today, no pants. And this is distracted boyfriend, new books at the bookstore, me, and unread books at home. Now, in order for it to be a meme, it means it has to have gone viral. It has to have been shared widely amongst people. And if anything's going to go viral, that means no one person can actually make it go viral. It has to go viral from being shared through multiple people. So, for example, I share something with you. You go out and share it, each of you, with a group of people and each person in that group of each of those groups then shares it beyond that, and that's how something goes viral. Now, of course, we've learned something in the last few years about how things go viral, right? There's some patient zero in Wuhan, China, and first reported case at the end of 2019, and by January of 2020, that person had gone in contact with other people, and then those people got in contact with other people. And, and by January of 2020, I think that's when we had our first reported case in the U.S., and then by March, everything had just shut down. And now more than 670 million reported cases of COVID, and it's in every country in the world, reported in every country in the world, except for two, North Korea and Turkmenistan, although I'm questioning the reporting there. I don't know if that's actually accurate. So we've been on this series called On Mission as we go through the book of Acts, and we're seeing how the Holy Spirit is working through those first followers of Jesus 
to carry on the message of Jesus after he died, resurrected, and then went up to heaven to be with the Father. And in a sense, we're seeing how this message of Jesus is going viral. It starts in Jerusalem, then it kind of moves out to the region around in Judea, and then kind of expands from there to Samaria, and then it's going to be going to the ends of the earth. And that's really the part of Acts that we're in right now, where we're beginning to see the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And of course, the message does end up going viral. It goes all over the world, and 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it right now. Now, part of the challenge in trying to teach through the book of Acts, which we've been doing since last fall, except for our break in Advent, is that there's a lot to it. There are some big overarching themes that are a part of it, but then there are all these little bits and pieces as well. And today I've kind of got like an overarching theme for you, but I might have some bits and pieces where I get off on a few tangents here and there along the way. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 16 the whole time though, so if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a device, go ahead and pull up Acts 16. I'd love for you to be able to follow along um, as, we're, as we're going. Now we've talked quite a bit about how in the book of Acts, the gospel moves into new territory, and we've talked about how the church today can learn from the church in Acts how to be a faithful church of Jesus, um, but today I want to kind of bring that a little, little closer to home individually for us. How do, we, how do we live this out? Now let's get started in chapter 16 here. There's some extra bits to chapter 16, but most of what we read about is Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and maybe some others in Philippi. Philippi is a Roman city in modern-day Greece. So just to give you a sense of what's happening here, last week we were in chapter 15 of Acts, and all of these same people were in Jerusalem. Turn the page, chapter 16, we skipped over just a few verses and now already they're in Philippi. So just to give you a sense of that a little bit, you got Jerusalem down there at the bottom, and just in the few verses here from 15 to 16, they've gone up to Antioch, then they start making their way across modern-day Turkey. They try to go up further north, but it says that the Spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them to go up further north. But then uh, Paul has this um, vision, a dream, of somebody in Macedonia. So they end up making way over to Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece. If we can move that forward there just a little bit more, one more as well, and we're going to see Greece over there, Philippi in modern-day Greece. So look at the whole map. They've gone from Jerusalem all the way down there, all the way up to Philippi. You can see how the gospel is moving further and further out. Now, Philippi might sound familiar to us because later on, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, and, and typically we call that the book of Philippians. And we're seeing right here in chapter 6, 16, the beginning of that church that Paul later on is going to write to. And it starts out with a woman named Lydia. She's a dealer in purple cloth, and she's a worshiper of God, which means she wasn't Jewish, but she did worship God in some way. And she seems to be in charge of a household. 
Now, Paul and his companions met Lydia and a group of other women in a place of prayer. I might get off topic here for just a little bit. I've got to go on a tangent. It's important to point out here that Luke is touching on a theme that he has throughout his writings, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, of elevating women in the story. This happens in the Bible in several different ways, but it becomes a really important topic for Luke. He highlights how some of the most faithful followers of Jesus from the very beginning were women and that they held prominent roles within the church as well. Now that's the case for Lydia here. She's the only person in chapter 16 in Philippi who is named by name. She's the only one from the Philippian church. Luke is highlighting her specifically. In an incredibly patriarchal society, Luke is emphasizing that women are not secondary to men. Instead, they are, like Peter writes later on, co-heirs. And as Paul writes, co-laborers in a kingdom where there is no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, back to Lydia. Lydia hears the message about Jesus. She responds, and she has her whole household baptized. Then she opens up her whole household to Paul and his companions, and later ends up opening it up to the whole church gathering in Philippi. In verse 40, Luke says, after Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Paul travels all the way from Jerusalem to Philippi and shares the message of Jesus with this group of women by the river, and then the message goes viral from there. Paul and his companions leave, but Philippi actually becomes an important city in church history. The message kept going out. The gospel kept growing there for hundreds of years, well after Paul left. But we're not ready for Paul to leave yet. There's one more story here in chapter 16 of Philippi that we want to talk about. It starts in verse 16, if you want to follow along. But Paul and his companions, they're going back to that place of prayer, and then they encounter this girl who is a slave and who is possessed by a spirit. Now, by this spirit, she predicts the future and makes money for her owners. Now, this girl is completely in contrast to Lydia. Lydia is named. She has a household. She has a business. She has authority. This girl is anonymous and under the control of people and spirits. She has no agency for herself. Luke says about the girl, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Paul ends up freeing this girl from the spirit that, uh, in the name of Jesus. But it's kind of this really interesting story here that we should probably just talk about for a little bit. I'm gonna have to get off on a tangent. Under the power of the spirit, the girl doesn't seem to say anything terribly bad, right? She says, these people are servants of the most high God and they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. But at the same time, that spirit was not of Jesus. 
And I don't know if it was just such a gen- generic phrase that of um, the most high God at that time or if there was a specific connection that maybe it even kind of pulled people's attention away from Jesus in some way. But ultimately, even though on the surface it seemed like it wasn't a bad thing, there was something there that was not of Jesus. And sometimes we have to look at those things in our own lives. Something that maybe on the surface doesn't look so bad, but is it actually not of Jesus? And is it pointing us away from Jesus in, in some way? Paul commands the spirit to leave the girl, though, and the spirit leaves. And then the owners see their prophets leaving as well. So they go to the marketplace, to the highest officials in the city of Philippi, and and pretty soon the crowds get stirred up and worked up against Paul and Silas. The message of the owners went viral as well. But it wasn't a good message. It stirred up anger and hatred and violence and eventually landed Paul and Silas in prison. And miraculously, God frees them from prison. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Just for a moment here. Didn't we just talk about how Peter was miraculously freed from prison? In fact, we've seen a lot of things happen to Paul that have already happened to Peter. This is actually part of Luke's literary strategy in what he's doing. He's trying to show over the course of the whole book that Paul is a valid apostle more than Matthias. Do you remember Matthias from chapter one who was never mentioned again? Maybe not. It's okay if you don't because that's the whole point. Matthias wasn't the actual apostle, Paul is. And in fact, Paul is an apostle at the level of Peter. Peter heals people, Paul's gonna heal people. Peter's garments are going to heal people, Paul's garments are going to heal people. Peter is miraculously freed from prison, Paul is miraculously freed from prison. Peter is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is going to go to the ends of the known world to preach the gospel. Now, this isn't Luke's main point in his writing, but it's part of the strategy of the whole book. He's highlighting the things that prove that Paul is an apostle. So we keep seeing Paul in the same circumstances as as Peter. I'm getting off track here, though. Paul wasn't actually miraculously freed from prison anyway. There was an earthquake, all the doors opened, the chains came off, but they stayed there. They didn't leave the jail. And when the jailer, the, the, the guard wakes up and realizes that he thinks all the prisoners have escaped, he runs down and he's going to kill himself because he thinks he's in really serious trouble then Paul says, nope, we haven't left. We're still here. The jailer comes, falls at, Peter, or at Paul's feet and says, what must I do to be saved? And just like with Lydia, the jailer's whole household is baptized that very night. And then Luke says, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he 
and his whole household. And what we see happening here with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke is pretty much the same thing that we've been seeing in the book of Acts since chapter 2. That the gospel, the message of Jesus, is going further and further out. It's moving out beyond Jerusalem. But now in the story of Acts, much of this is instigated by Peter and Paul as they move out from, from Jerusalem. But we're seeing more and more how each interaction causes a viral spread of the gospel that is more than what Peter or Paul could do on their own. This is the main point of what I want to get across to you today, that we all have an opportunity to bear witness to Jesus in our own Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is really the way that it needs to happen. It's the way that it always has happened, that many individuals take the message of Jesus to places that no one individual could do on her own or on his own. That means this week we all got to hop on different planes, go to different parts of the world, strategically pick some cities and tell people about Jesus, right? It happens in our life as we go about the regular things of our life. This is where we take it. We start in our household. We move to our neighborhoods and to our workplace and then to the public square. Now, there are connections with each of these areas in chapter 16 here in what we see in the story of, of the church in Philippi in Acts. So let's take a look at each. And with each course, we will pair them nicely with a fine meme. We're going to start with a household. We see two households in Philippi. There's Lydia's and there's the jailer's. Both function in the same way in the story. When Lydia and the jailer hear the message about Jesus, so do the households, and their whole households are baptized. Households would have looked different in the first century than they do now, but as a father of four, I can tell you, that's the epicenter for all viruses, for sure. One person in that house is sick, everybody else is getting sick. I mean, there's just that much connection within the household. Now, this looks different for all of us. You know, some, some people here might be single, live with a roommate, some have maybe just adults living at the home, some have kids living at the home, some people just live alone on their own. So this doesn't look the same for everybody and how we define our household might be a little bit different, but the house, household is the starting place for most people. When someone like Jesus enters into our lives and changes us, it's our household that's going to know about it first. This is Jerusalem for us. I see this, uh, an example of this in our life group. Um, if you're not part of a group, by the way, I'd really encourage you to become part of a group. This is where life really happens in the church and where change can really happen 
In the church, we have rooted groups starting up in March. You can find out more information. It's a great entryway into relationships with other people in the church. In our life group, though, we've been going through this parenting curriculum because we're all parents of young kids. And as we're discussing this curriculum, I'm hearing all these stories about how people are bringing Jesus into their households. Parents who are reading scripture with their kids and praying with their kids. Husbands and wives who are reading and discussing scripture with each other and praying with each other. Families who are practicing a Sabbath, taking an intentional day together to worship and to rest. Now, I know for a lot of you, that's not your life. You don't have a spouse or you don't have kids at home. It's going to look different for you. But that's my current situation, so it's the easiest one for me to share from. Whatever the situation is, though, how are you bearing witness to Jesus in your household? How are you bringing Jesus into your home? In your household, it'll often be the most basic ways. Prayer and scripture and living an example of following Jesus. Okay, moving out from the household now into the neighborhood. Now, just as Lydia and the jailer both have their household mentioned in the story, we also see that for both of them, they, I'm sorry, I really like that one. I, they, they extend hospitality to those outside of their home. They welcome people into their homes. Lydia not only invites Paul and his followers into, his home, into her home, but eventually she ends up hosting the church. Those are the brothers and sisters that are mentioned in verse 40. The jailer also welcomes Paul and Silas into his home and offers them a meal. This is the next level out from our household. It's our Judea. And it's, it includes not just our physical neighborhood, but it includes our friends as well. People who we're close to, but who, who don't live in our household. Now, recently, Steph and I went over to um, a couple uh, from church here over to their house. They host, hosted us for dinner. It was fantastic. The meal was great. The conversation was great. Everything about it was really wonderful. But what I really enjoyed about that time was hearing about how this couple is so intentional about building relationships with their neighborhood. They live in a relatively new development of like 70 homes, and our host said she's an organizer. So she just organizes ways for the neighborhood to build relationships with one another, to do activities together, and then they're constantly hosting people from the neighborhood into their homes. They're bearing witness to Jesus, and they're creating the right scenario where the the relational scenario where they're able to do that well. Which is great. I mean, neighborhoods are often known for their gossip, right? What if a neighborhood was known for the gospel? What if that was the whispering that was happening in a neighborhood, was the whispering of Jesus? I think the best way to do this within a neighborhood is to build and cultivate relationships over time with your neighbors and then be there for them like a good friend when they need you to. That's going to be the way to bear witness to neighbors. Okay, moving further out to the workplace. The workplace is mentioned 
in two contrasting ways in Philippi. On the one hand, you have Lydia, who is a dealer in purple cloth. She's a businesswoman. You have to wonder uh, how her new faith in Jesus is going to affect her business. Then on the other hand, you have the owners of the slave girl who are consumed by the money that they're making off of exploiting this girl. And when the well runs dry, they go after revenge. It seems like Lydia is willing to give up all that she has, and the slave owners are willing to do whatever it takes to hold on to what they have. Many of us have to face that same tension as well. Will we be captivated more by money than we will be captivated by Jesus? Now, the workplace plays a a part in my own story of coming to Jesus, and some of you may have heard this part of my story before, but I was in my mid-20s, and I was just absolutely wasting my life, not doing anything productive or effective for society, but I just started this new job with Kraft Foods, and both my, the person who was training me and my boss were followers of Jesus, and they were really open with me about their faith. And there were just the right other circumstances in my life at the same time that as they were talking to me about Jesus, something really clicked, and that's when everything changed in my life. And if they hadn't been faithful in telling me about Jesus at that time, I don't know what the scenario would have been like. They could have trained me well for the job. We could have had good sales and made good commissions and been done with it all. But I hope they realize that they had a more significant impact than anything else just by sharing Jesus with me. Now, when I came to faith, I thought, I want to have an impact on people too. I felt called to ministry, and so I moved to Portland to go to Multnomah Bible College, and then I became a pastor, which is a really hard place to witness to people, working as a pastor. Because I try to tell my coworkers about Jesus, and they already know about him you have better opportunities than I do. Whatever your circle is, whatever your workplace is, you have better opportunities than I do to share with others about Jesus. I was just sitting down, hanging out with some guys from church uh, last week. I was just sitting there thinking about it. We've got here a psychologist. We've got somebody in sales We've got somebody who works for a public utility. We've got somebody who's retired, and we've got somebody who's in the financial industry. Just the six of us right there around that table, Uh, and then the pastor who can't do anything. But the others have so much opportunity and so much spread to consider in, in sharing about Jesus. All right. Beyond the workplace, we move into the public square. In Philippi, this is the marketplace where Paul and Silas get in trouble. Yeah, that sounds about right. Luke says, 
When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Paul and Silas had to face the government authorities and the crowds, and they had to suffer physical abuse in the process. It was a pretty volatile situation for Paul and Silas. And honestly, our public square, it's a little bit of a hot mess right now too, right? I mean, I think an equivalent for us in a, for the public square is social media, But really, the the public square, what I mean by this is any interactions that we're having outside of the people that we know from our household or neighborhood or workplace. The public square, it's really a challenge for Christians right now. Not because we're in a threat of being beaten with rods or thrown in jail. And who knows, maybe that will happen someday. But it's hard for Christians right now because Christians as a group don't always put their best foot forward in the public square. Just on Friday, uh, there was this interview on NPR, All Things Considered, one of their most popular shows, tens of millions of people who listen to it every week. And they were talking about the He Gets Us campaign. Have you heard of this campaign? You've probably seen the ads. You've probably seen the billboards. It's all about Jesus being able to relate to our circumstances. And I hope that it does a lot of good things for the kingdom. But as they are evaluating this He Gets Us campaign, the reporter says, I think part of the idea behind the ad is that people have had bad experiences with Christians, especially in the past few years. And so they want to try and get the focus off Christians and back to Jesus. In the public square, we don't have the best witness as a group. But you can affect how that witness is in public with how you interact with strangers with how you interact with people who are working at the grocery store or working at restaurants, with how you post on social media, does it reflect Jesus or does it reflect your politics? Does it reflect Jesus or does it reflect your opinions? How are we using that opportunity? Let's talk through Just a few points here to kind of close us out on being a witness today. The first one is that the best witness happens within relationship. In our society right now, there is an incredible level of distrust and destabilization around institutions. Do any of you have less trust in institutions today? in any way? A lot of people do in our society, and that includes the church as well. It's also really tough to try and think through how do we program life change 
or people. Another interesting uh, study that came out recently that kind of showed how even for government programs, they don't really bring about the change that's desired. Something else more organic needs to happen. Now, in the church, we have programs that are really good that try to help set the stage for people so that they can grow in their knowledge of Jesus and their faith in Jesus. But ultimately, where that really needs to happen is in the context of a trusting relationship. The church can't do it. It needs to happen where that trust is already built. There are a lot of people who are not going to come into the church that you have contact with, that you have trust with, that you have influence with. Now, here's the thing. I know I've been saying kind of some some negative things about the perception of the church or perception of Christians in society. I don't think that about you. I think you're all great, personally. I think you're really wonderful people. Here's the thing. I think everybody who would get to know you would find out you're a wonderful person as well. Isn't that what happens when we picture a group and we have a negative perception of them and then we build a relationship with them and we find out, oh, they're not actually so bad. You're not actually so bad. You're wonderful. You just got to get in those relationships to show people how wonderful you are and then be able to reveal to them how wonderful Jesus is as well. Number two, the best witness happens with our words and our actions. You think about this from the story. Lydia just heard the message and she believed. The jailer saw the actions of Paul and Silas staying in prison. Then he heard the message and he believed. There's a sense in which we've got to be able to show who we are as followers of Jesus as we're telling people about Jesus as well. Later on, Paul writes to the Philippian church. And he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In that same NPR interview that I was talking about, the reporter is kind of uh, um, taking the stance of, of addressing all of society. He's taking the posture of all of society. He says, to the church, he says, you say you love us, but we don't feel that love. We've got to demonstrate that love We have to demonstrate that love as we're talking about Jesus, which really brings us to the last one. The best witness happens in the context of love. Jesus said, the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We can't go out there and just try to make this happen. I certainly don't want you to feel like some guilt trip here that you need to go out and witness in any way. More so, I want us to cultivate this love of God so much than, and then having experienced that love of God to be compelled to want to share it with our neighbor because we love them as well. That's what's gonna happen when we, we cultivate that love in ourselves or that we cultivate the love of God for ourselves and see that played out for other people. You can do that 
in someone's life in a way that can't for somebody else, uh, for the same person. You can do it in a way that I can't do it for that same person. Your own unique experiences, who God has made you to be in the experiences that, that you have had, have set you up to be able to share with certain people that message of Jesus. Remember what a meme is. A meme is an image. This is an awkward moment. Um, I almost said seahorse. That's not a seahorse. That's a sea lion. Awkward moment, sea lion is what this is called. But it's a meme when you take text and apply it to a specific circumstance. That's how a meme works. You take the message, the picture, the image that is viral, the gospel, the message of Jesus, and you put your own text on it. You put your own self into it as you share it with other, with other people. The way we share it changes based on the circumstances. One more time with this NPR uh, uh, interview from the other day. When talking about bad experiences that people have had with the church, the reporter says, and the ad campaign may not solve that. And the interviewer says, even if it's a billion dollar ad, ad campaign, the reporter says, even if it's a billion dollar ad campaign. The church can't do it on its own as an organization. A program can't do it on its own, but you can. The church as an organization can't affect all of Portland, but together individually as people, you can. The message of Jesus doesn't go viral inside of this building. The message of Jesus goes viral as you take it out into your Jerusalem and your Judea and your Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Jesus, you've been so good to us. Uh, you've just poured out grace to us each and every day. Help us to recognize that the way we live our lives each day is by your grace. I pray, God, that you would reveal to us more of how much you love us and that you would help us to love those people around us as well. And I pray for all of us in this room that you would help us to see the opportunities that are there to be able to show, to demonstrate, and also to speak the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus. We love you and we trust you. Amen.